Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Welcome to BU Law with host David Yaz. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Boston University Law School podcast. I'm your host, David Yaz. Now, of course, I am a proud 1993 alum of the law school. I used to be the publisher of Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Now I'm a VP at Bernstein Global Wealth Management. But most importantly, I'm the host of your podcast today, and I'm delighted to be here. We actually have a terrific show for you today, a topic that I guarantee you'll say you've never really thought of before. And here it is. There's great debate over the current healthcare system and the treatment of the poor and women of color in a medical setting. Today, we sit down with a guest to discuss her new book, reflect on our observations of a public hospital in Manhattan, and spotlight the politics of healthcare involving the poor and women of color. We are lucky right now to be joined by Professor Kiara Bridges, who's the Associate Professor of Law at BU School of Law and Associate Professor of Anthropology. Professor Bridges teaches critical race theory and criminal law at the law school. She joins the BU faculty from the Center for Reproductive Rights, where she enjoyed an academic fellowship that was co-hosted and co-sponsored by Columbia Law School. She's written many articles on race and women's experiences of reproduction, and she is with us today to discuss her book, Reproducing Race and Ethnography. Eth- <laughs> Professor, you're going to have to help me with, the, with that word. <laughs> ethnography, correct? And, yes, eth- and, and ethnography of pregnancy as a site of racialization. It's published it's by. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it is a little bit of a mouthful, but it's a terrific looking book. It's, it's, the cover is dramatic and the, and the topic is just tremendous. It's, it's an eye catching product. It's published by the University of California Press. So, welcome to the show, Kiara. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Well, let's get into this topic because, again, it, I think it's something that you know we, we think about race issues and we think about health care issues, but we don't often think of the way they intersect in this particular way. So you spent a year and a half doing anthropological field work in the obstetrics clinic of large public hospital in Manhattan, and your aim was to write this book. So, so just give us an overall view of what the experience was like. Well, um, so yeah, I started um, in, let's say, I think it was like May of 2007, and um, it took me a year and a half actually to get clearance to get the, the, to do the research. Um, there's a lot of processes you have to uh, endure in order to research on human subjects, so it took me a long time. So when I finally got there, I didn't know what to expect, and in fact, the entire a year and a half was filled with unexpected experiences. Um, so this is a very large public hospital. It's actually famous uh, for being a public hospital in Manhattan. And I was overwhelmed with just the number of different ethnicities, races, um, nationalities, languages spoken um, by the patients. Um, the number of healthcare providers was staggering. And when I talk about healthcare providers, I'm not talking about simply um, the doctors and, and residents or um, attendings. I'm talking about nurses and other professionals like 
financial aid um, counselors and geneticists and um, nutritionists and health educators. So it was just a mass of bodies that swirled around me for a year and a half. And it took me probably a good six months just to figure out what was going on. Um, and then I spent the rest of the year trying to interpret um, what was what um, it was, in fact, that I was observing. So have you disguised the identity of this actual hospital for the purposes of the book? Is that right? I have. I use a pseudonym. I call it Alpha Hospital. Um, the book is a fairly trenchant um, critique of the hospital, but only be, it's, a, it's a critique of the hospital only because the hospital um, is a figure in this national debate. So I say in the book that I could have done the research anywhere. I could have done it at Grady Hospital in Atlanta. I actually went to school in Atlanta. I worked at um, Grady. Um, I could have done it at Cook County Hospital. Um, I could have done it at many public hospitals in the U.S. Um, and pretty much would have been able to tell the same story that I do about race and the delivery of prenatal care. Um, it's because we have a national system, Medicaid. Um, we have a two-tiered health care system. We have private insurance versus those who um, have to rely on public insurance. And, of course, there are those who are uninsured because they don't come within either one of those tiers. Um, so what ha- what I observed in the hospital was really a national phenomenon that was realized in this discrete um, place. Um, so, but I do disguise identity only because I don't want people to identify what I talk about and the critique that I make solely with the hospital. It could have been that XYZ hospital in mm-hmm. XYZ city um, in any state in the well, U.S. Well, I'm, I'm still going to try to guess, okay? You ready? No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I understand that. I, I, I imagine some of that revolves around patient-doctor uh, confidentiality as well, right? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I do have a figure in the book. I call her Dr. Rose, who if anyone ever identified her identity, if anyone ever identified her as Dr. Rose, she'd probably be really irritated with me. So mm. <laughs> I'm protecting her. Take that one sure. to your grave. Absolutely. <laughs> so, t- so tell us what, well, first of all, this, this particular hospital, when you sort of first started the experience, what was your impression of the quality of medical care generally? It's, it's an inner city hospital, and we have images of hospitals that just kind of squeak by on what they have. Tell us what you experienced in that regard. Well, I think the hospital um, delivers pretty darn good um, health care, um, and that's why it's so overburdened, um, because patients actually choose to come to Alpha Hospital um, in order to receive their prenatal care, because they do give good care. It's a good, it's a, it's a teaching hospital as well. Um, the residency program um, that it's affiliated with is one of the most competitive residencies um, in obstetrics and gynecology in the U.S. Um, so they get smart um, med students who become smart residents, who become smart doctors. So the quality of the care, I have no um, critique of the quality of the mm-hmm. care. I think it's excellent care. I do have a critique of the abundance of care. <laughs> I do have a critique of the fact that women can't opt out of a highly medicalized, highly um, science-intensive um, course of care for their pregnancies. Um, there's a idea that pregnancy is not a state of illness, but rather is a state of health. Um, but the hospital is not interested <laughs> in that philosophy of pregnancy. In other um, words, the that there are certain certain treatments, certain visits, and certain things that are repeated at the hospital that may very well be unnecessary. Is that what you're saying? Co- correct. Mm. Um, it's, it's necessary when you approach pregnancy as 
um, a state of, of the body that could go wrong at any moment. Um, but it's completely unnecessary if you understand pregnancy. And, and I hate to put labels on it, but like a holistic alternative view of pregnancy um, doesn't understand the event as um, one that necessitates medical intervention. Um, and so when when women have that perspective on their pregnancies, then the healthcare that's delivered to them is just grossly excessive. It's grossly out of line with um, that philosophy of their bodies. Um, but one thing that I did want to mention about the hospital is that while the care is good, as you mentioned, it's a public hospital. So um, the sights and sounds that one would expect in a public hospital are certainly present mm-hmm. at Alpha Hospital. Um, this is the site where, you know, if a homeless man falls into a subway truck, this mm-hmm. is where he's going to be taken. Um, gunshot wounds, emergency room is um, constantly um, visited by all the traumas that happen um, in Manhattan. And because it's a public hospital, if you don't have um, health insurance, this is where you're going to be taken. So that element is certainly a part of it. Um, I describe it as entering a a secured but potentially dangerous place. Um, I had to flash an ID every day. Um, I was constantly um, questioned about should I be there? Should I not be there? Um, so that sense of being in a public space that is safe for the time being, but could potentially go wrong at any moment right. <laughs> um, was also very much a, a part of my research. So Kiara, let's get to some of the central points of your book and the the role of race in a medical setting and the treatment of the poor and, and women of color. When you were in there, what sort of themes started to emerge to you? Um, one of the most obvious characteristics of the hospital um, is the antagonism between the staff and the patients. And I always tell the story that if we go down there right now and we wait around long enough, um, we would witness an altercation or an incredibly belligerent interaction uh, between staff and patients. And by staff, I'm not referring to, to physicians. The physicians didn't have the same type of antagonistic relationship with the patients as the staff. And by staff, I mean ancillary staff. These were the, on the tier of hospital staff, these were the women on the lowest rung, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they were the ones who were the first line. They were the ones sitting behind the front desk and making appointments and giving pregnancy tests and um, doing the paperwork, really, answering phone calls, et cetera. Um, and these were the women who were closest to the patients um, in terms of racial um, ascription, racial identity, mm-hmm. in terms of class, um, and as well in terms of immigration status as well. Um, so in terms of class, these women were poor, right? Like they were receiving um, their benefits package wasn't as large um, as one would hope it would mm-hmm. be, mm-hmm. right? Um they and I and I say that had they been a lot of women been twenty years younger and pregnant, they would have been on the other side of the desk coming to a public hospital asking for health insurance, right? So mm-hmm. the only thing that separated um the staff from the patients was this job that wasn't that great to begin with. Um and so I explain so um uh, so although the care is, is really wonderful, um patients at a public hospital and especially at Alpha are going to have to deal with a lot of antagonism um, from the staff um, that they encounter. And so I explain this in terms of the 
as a, as a structural mechanism, as a structural response to the proximity between the staff and their patients. Um, it was the staff's way of distancing themselves from these patients who are maligned throughout political and popular discourses, right? These patients are the ones that um, we can turn on CNN or Fox News and hear someone lament the welfare state. Uh, we can hear someone lament the size of government handouts. These were the patients who are receiving these government handouts. These are the patients who are welfare queens and making, right? So these are uh, people who are very much criticized and blamed for a lot of the U.S.'s um, budgetary problems and social problems. Um, and so I saw staff antagonism of these patients as a mechanism that distances themselves from these figures that are just, you know, highly criticized throughout um, society. And so it, make, it, it makes sense. Right. Right. There's an anecdote in your book about a conversation you overheard about certain people talking about a woman who had come in and who was pregnant. And the conversation, the subject of the conversation was that the, the two people were saying how this person, this pregnant person represented part of the problem with society where she would continue to have children sort of um, be supported by the system, have no desire to go back to work herself and that she right. had just chosen to do this and to mm-hmm. sort of live off of the, you know, the the state, live off of the country's funds instead of doing something with her own life. So, is that the sort of thing you're you're that that you observed, and even among the staff of the hospital would react yeah. that way? Even yeah. among the staff, like it was, it's odd. Like, had you um, blotted out the faces and just recorded the conversation? This would have been um, like a conversation that you would expect to hear among very fiscally conservative pundits, right, on one of these news shows. But no, it was this it was a conversation that was happening among women of color who are poor um, and um, who share the same immigration status. When, when During my time there, um, all of the ancillary staff were first-generation immigrant women of color, um, and um, a lot of the patient uh, population at Alpha Hospital um, is uh, immigrants, um, recent immigrants. Um, so there is the identity in terms of immigration status. But yeah, like the, I mean, and this was just one conversation that I report in the book. There are numerous conversations from my field notes that I could have pulled out mm. and typed out and included in the book of the staff saying, oh, these women, are just, you know, they're having babies in order to get on welfare and they're going to continue to have babies in order to get a bigger welfare check. And if they just worked, if they just stopped reproducing and got a job, then they'd be just like us, you know, part of the working poor. Right. Um, and I dispute that account of women's reproductive choices. I Doubt highly, and my experience with women um, certainly confirmed that women don't have children in order to receive a measly small check from the government every month. It just doesn't make fiscal sense. <laughs> right. So, Kiara, we're headed to a break, but let me ask you one more thing: mm-hmm. Was it were those? Com- did you perceive those comments to be racially charged? In other words, the people that were making these assumptions about women who chose to be on welfare and all that—that that more of them were minorities than not. I do. I certainly think there's a, a racial um, salience to the comments. They are racially charged. Um, but one thing about, and I talk about in the book, one thing about the welfare queen is that it doesn't matter what race a physical welfare recipient is. The figure of the welfare queen throughout political discourse is African-American woman. She's a black woman. She's a person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
uh, when women's racial ascriptions identify, you know, align with that blackness, then it's easier to see the welfare queen in, in, a, in, a, in an individual patient. Um, but the welfare queen um, was identifiable in all of the patients at Alpha Hospital because they had those characteristics of the welfare queen, which is a poor woman who has children and is turning to the state um, to help her um, with her financial survival. So, yeah, they were democratic in that in that sense mm. that pretty much every patient who um, appeared in the clinic was going to be subject to this harsh treatment um, that I explain in terms of political um, and popular discourses of of you know bloodsuckers of the the government's uh, pocketbook. Right. right. <laughs> Very interesting stuff. We are now headed to a break. We're going to take a break when we return more with Professor Kiara Bridges. Stay with us on the BU Law Podcast. Located in Boston and steeped in 139 years of a rich tradition, BU Law is ranked number one in the nation for best professors and number eight for best classroom experience, according to the Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Think you might like to have us create your own podcast on LegalTideNetwork.com? Go to the website and send us an email, or just give us a call at 781-551-9960. It's the best move you'll make in legal marketing. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. So welcome back to the BU Law Podcast. I'm David Yaz, proud BU Law alum, but more importantly, my guest today is Professor Kiara Bridges, Associate Professor of Law at BU School of Law and Associate Professor of Anthropology. We're discussing her book now. Take this down, but please know that Professor Bridges' book is available on Amazon.com. Very easy to find. The title of the book is Reproducing Race, an Ethnography of Pregnancy as a Site of Racialization. It's published by the University of California Press and gets into some just very interesting and I think issues that are that are unprecedented in terms of study as far as how race relates to healthcare, especially in the arena of pregnant women. So we're talking about the professor's experiences sort of sitting in at this hospital in Manhattan. And tell us, Professor, um, how about whether the issue of race carries on even after birth, like e- even into infancy and even into childhood? Were you able to witness that dynamic? Well, um, I because I was stationed in the uh, obstetrics clinic, um, my interaction with the women ended when they stopped being pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, one of, one of the things about, um, Alpha Hospital is that, uh, they have this postpartum visit where women return to the hospital like six to eight weeks after they give birth and they basically have a check-in and make sure that they're healthy and for the most part. So I got to interact with women at that um, when they were no longer pregnant and when they had become mothers. And um, one of the recurrent themes that I observed was the number of women who would tell me stories about their infants almost being taken away. Their, um, this very um, 
instances where they were almost unable to take their infants home after the infants were born. And there was actually one woman um, who told me a story who had, in fact, um, lost custody of her children. Um, she had two grown children. Um, they were, I wouldn't say grown, but they were eight and six. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she went into labor with her current pregnancy, she went to the hospital um, to deliver her infant um, with her eight and six year old. Um, in the delivery room, persons under the age of 18 are not allowed. So she couldn't take her two children with her into the, to the delivery room. Mm-hmm. All sorts of red flags were raised in the hospital about why it is that a woman would come to the hospital without a support system. And there are very good reasons why a woman would come to the hospital to deliver infant without a support system. Her reason was that her partner was working. She's an immigrant. She didn't know anybody else. Um, so anyway, the social um, worker got involved. And to make a very long and tragic story short, um, her infant, her children, her eight and six year old were placed into foster care. Um, Permanently? The, yeah. Well, she had, she was in the, it was six weeks after the incident had happened when I saw her and she still had not regained custody of her, of her children. Simply for the, simply for that reason or there was a history as well? No, I mean, she had no history in the U.S. She was a recent immigrant, so there was no history that the um, child protective services um, had had with her. Um, but what happens is that when women enter into this hospital, um, they're immediately under um, the government's gaze, right? They're immediately being um, surveilled and, and watched and um, the possibility of the state taking punitive actions, um, which the state will always um, call, you know, beneficial because the state is looking to protect um, infants and protect children. Um, that sort of possibility is much greater for the poor woman than it is um, for the privately insured woman. Now that, um, that, so- yeah. I'm just going to say that is just mind-boggling that the hospital is not equipped to anticipate this kind of situation. And I'll go ahead and right away ask the cynical question. This was a woman from Scarsdale who came in with you know her two her two kids and said, "Gee whiz, uh, I'm delivering three weeks early. My husband just got called away. He's he's in L.A. I called a friend, but I haven't gotten in touch yet. Could someone please watch my children? I imagine it would have turned out differently." It would have, it would have been a completely different, um, story for this woman. Um, but no, so she had a six week, six week old infant, um, and she was struggling to regain custody of her six and eight year old yeah. children. So, yeah, so I think that race certainly plays a part, um, in childhood, into childhood, into infancy. Um, and although I wasn't able to interact with it as uh, frequently as I would have liked, I mean, that could be the subject of a follow-up, but just how these racial themes continue throughout the delivery of um, pediatric care. Everybody heard that, right, Professor Bridges? Second book, In the Works, <laughs> soon available. What should we say? 2013, maybe? I don't want to rush Yeah, give, give me a couple of years. Okay, a couple, couple of years away. So what, but uh, Professor Bridges, what, what do we do next? What, in other words, what, what can be done to change this dynamic, to change this, this problem, to change the way some of these women are treated? Right. Well, I think um, we all, universal health care has been on our minds um, of late. And I think uh, getting rid of the two-tiered um, health care system that we have in the States is um, going to go a long way towards um, doing, undoing some of the disparate treatment, um, that 
women experience when they're poor and when they're pregnant. Um, right now, all of the poor get funneled into the second tier, into the Medicaid tier, while the wealthier, those with the jobs with benefits, can uh, get shuttled into the private um, tier. And so there can be different rules for the rich and the poor. Um, one of one thing that was most uh, striking to me about the differences in terms of healthcare delivery is that for poor women, um, when you receive Medicaid, you're going to be tested three times for STDs. Um, so three times over the course of your pregnancy, you're going to get a screening for gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, HIV, syphilis, et cetera. Privately insured women can ex- can expect one screening at the beginning of their pregnancy. And so how is, you know, how does that construct women? Well, privately insured women are imagined to be in stable relationships where they're not having unprotected sex such that if they're STD-free at the beginning of their pregnancy, they're going to be STD-free at the end. Um, poor women are expected to be sexually active with multiple partners who are not, and they're not protecting themselves with those sexual encounters. So the necessity of testing them once in their first trimester, again in their third trimester, and then yet again um, in their postpartum um, appointment that I mentioned, just six to eight weeks after they have delivered a child, um, that sort of trouble testing of STDs, that sort of differing constructions of poor women and privately insured women would not happen in the system. One would... (laughs) It doesn't necessarily, one wouldn't expect that it would happen in the system of universal care. Um, so, uh, we could, so if there was, um, a homogenized system, then I think some of the more gross disparities, um, would be eliminated, but I don't want to be overly optimistic. I think that race and class from time and race has not been the same um since we first encountered it. Mm-hmm. Um race was first imagined as, you know, the the biological difference that was the fundamental otherness. Um now race has sort of morphed into we understand it to be a social construction. However, um it's still imagined as a fundamental otherness that can't be changed. Um culture has come to do the work of race. Um so now we talk about um violent cultures and and clashes of civilizations and things like that as if um that culture is now the radical otherness that race once was. Mm-hmm. So I think that race will shift, class discourses will shift, um, nationality discourses will shift. And so although we might have a universal healthcare system, we have to be attuned to the way that racism and classism and xenophobia will shift mm-hmm. in order to remain, in order to persist. It's going to persist in different guises, right? Mm-hmm. Um, black women might not necessarily be at the bottom of the totem pole. Um, we, it might be occupied by sexual minorities. It might be occupied by Arab Americans. It might be occupied by, you know, someone I, I can't even... Um, gesture to right now because it's so far removed from our immediate experience. Right. Um, but we just have to be attuned to the shifting of race. But I, I am hopeful about um, what universal health care can do to make my book uh, irrelevant. Well not, well, not yet. Someday, maybe. But for now, it certainly is relevant. And I tell you, if you pick up the book, it will open your eyes to some of these things and hopefully do its part to, to spark some of this debate that might cause change. So, Thank you so much. We could go on and on, Professor Bridges, but but uh, unfortunately we're up against the clock. So special special thanks to our guest, Kiara Bridges. 
And again, I want you to visit Amazon and pick up this book. It's called Reproducing Race, Kiara Bridges, and Kiara's name is, if you're wondering, K-H-I-A-R-A, Bridges, and it's typical spelling. Anything else we should be alerting people as to how to get in touch with you, a website or anything like that, Professor Bridges? Or You know, I'm on the BU Law's website. Okay. I would uh, really, really welcome um, questions or comments or anything about the book or critical race theory, criminal law. I also teach a course on the 14th Amendment, so if anybody has any questions about substantive due process, um, I'm willing to field those as well. So, <laughs> Are you tough? Are you a real Socratic method professor? Oh, yeah. Oh, my oh, yeah. goodness. Like catch people off guard. Yeah. I'm so glad I'm not there. I'm so <laughs> glad I finished that many years ago. Well, thanks so much again, uh, Kiara. You can find all the editions of the BU Law Podcast on Legal Talk Network, the BU Law website, as well as on iTunes. I'm David Yaz. Thank you very much for joining us today, and have a great day. Until next time, case closed. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.